Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hello, everyone. I've got a big question for you. Do you think the 222 Remington cartridge is adequate for deer hunting? And do you know whether a bullet continues to accelerate after it has left the muzzle of your rifle? We're going to try to find out the answers to those on today's episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone. Hey, glad to have you. I uh, heard from one of my patrons, Drew, and he was asking me about the 222 Remington. He's got good luck with it, and he wanted to wonder, try it on deer. Let's just see what he had to say. Hello, Ron. Uh, hey, I've got a question for you. Would you care to share your opinion on the 222 Remington for deer? After watching your videos and a few others on the uh, 22 caliber for deer hunting, it really seems intriguing. I have 50 grain VMAX bullets that are absolute tack drivers at 100 yards, literally one ragged hole. Taking into consideration the caliber, would I be better off with the VMAX or something that will go in and out or potentially something that will explode like a hand grenade in a deer? Or should I consider a bullet that will give me a prettier mushroom and more penetration? I know we all have seen the commercials and the ads for the beautiful mushroom but I don't, I don't feel that that's always the quickest or the most effective uh, regarding wound channel and caliber specific needs. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I wrote Drew back and said, hey, good questions, Drew. The 222 Remington can indeed kill deer effectively with proper shot placement, same as the 223 Remington. Neither is, of course, optimal, but thousands of hunters since 1950 have taken tens of thousands of deer with the 222 Remington. I'm sure many different bullet types have been used too. The thing is, the controlled expansion types are most likely to penetrate deeply and get through the shoulder muscle and bone should you miss that tight behind the shoulder shot. But they leave a pretty narrow wound channel. The more explosive varmint bullet that you suggest does indeed tear vital tissue dramatically, but you risk not getting inside if you hit the shoulder. With spine hits, either seems to suffice. I've taken a fair number of smaller African antelope up to the size of an Impala with a 223 Remington using Federal Fusion 62 grain bonded bullets. Most of these animals dashed off for several seconds before expiring. I took a feral pig, it was about an 80-pounder, from about 150 yards out with a 50-grain VMAX bullet from a 221 fireball, one shot behind the shoulder. But that bullet was going so slowly by the time that it hit that it performed with a classic mushroom. 
it reached the offside hide. The bottom line is that either approach can work. Just be real sure of shot placement. My vote would be for a 50 to 55 grain frangible bullet to the heart. And then I want to add something I didn't uh, write back to Drew is that I would keep my shots inside of 150 yards. Even though the 222 Remington is a fairly flat shooter, just doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of high muzzle velocity to keep carrying out that far. Um, you've got minimal energy to start with, and you're certainly going to, using a light frangible bullet like that, get that eruption inside. So typically your bullets, uh, those kinds of bullets are going to penetrate an inch to two inches and then explode like that little hand grenade. And we've all seen that, I think, in footage at least of varmints being shot. Um, and you think about it, if you're behind the shoulder and you just have to go through a little bit of hide on a deer and then maybe a rib bone, ideally you want to get between the ribs, but who, who can aim for that? Um, but those bullets generally will stay together enough to get through that little rib bone. And then they erupt in the heart and lungs and create some really massive tissue destruction right where it counts. But, yeah, you know, many fish and game agencies, if not most, rec recommend against varmint bullets. And I think some of them even disallow the use of frangible bullets like that. But over the years, I've seen it work so many times. And I hear from so many people who use the 223, especially just because it's more popular than the 222. And they get dramatic results. So that's kind of my advice on that, folks. But hey, can't blame me if you prefer a 308 Winchester. <laughs> now, here is something um, from Richard. Ron, I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, 308 Winchester series. I really like the reviews concerning different rifles. I have a couple of 308 rifles. One in particular is a Thompson Center Icon. I bought it as soon as they came out. And at the time, they were only chambered in small action calibers. And I've always wanted a custom hunting rifle, but didn't have a couple of thousand dollars to spend on one. However, that icon came with a lot of custom rifle features. I would have preferred a 30 6 or a 300 Winchester Magnum, but I, I bought what was available at the time. It seems to be the most accurate rifle I own. I know they are no longer made, but what is your experience and knowledge of the icon? I see that many modern rifles have receivers and bolts made with the same design as the Icon. Was Thompson Center at the forefront of this design, or did they use the design from another manufacturer? Please keep up the great content, Richard. So, uh, Richard, we're looking into doing more of these extensive rifle tests and reviews, so thanks for that. We're going to try to tackle some more. Now, as for that TC Icon, I'm not positive it was the first three-locking lug full bolt diameter bold action rifle in history, but I believe it started the trend that was soon joined by the Ruger American, the Winchester XPR, and similar rifles. Um, the idea here, guys, is that your bolt diameter is the same as the outside diameter of your lugs, lug to lug. And that's generally three lugs and that full bolt diameter that slides smoothly down the raceway because really the entire receiver is the raceway. So you don't get the binding that you get sometimes with the two lugs sticking out past the diameter of the bolt as in a model 700 Remington, the Savage 110s, 116s, Winchester model 70 Mausers, all the old style. So there's an inherent smoothness in that. Now, let's see what else I said to Richard here before I sign off. Um, 
Um, I added this. From its aluminum bedding block to its adjustable trigger, that icon was quite innovative. I borrowed one years ago for a South African hunt in which I took kudu and blesbuck, diker, bushbuck, springbuck, impala, and a baboon with, if I remember correctly, not a miss. I was shooting the 7 rem mag with 160 grain Hornady SST bullets, which wouldn't have been my first choice, but I was really impressed with how they performed, especially at range. Took a, took a kudu 330 yards with that and parked two bullets about this far apart in the heart, a little high and a little low in the heart. Um, and the bullets both landed on the opposite side against the hide, mushroom-like an advertisement for a perfect mushroom. So that really worked well. But on some closer shots inside of 100 yards on, and I remember one on an Impala especially, right in the boiler room, and that thing ran off, and we literally had to get a tracking dog to come up with it. And it was still alive, which really surprised me. Seven rem mag, 162-grain bullet, and a fairly soft bullet at that right in the chest. And this is just one of those things you really can't explain. You would have thought that would have been one and done right quickly. So a lot of different things can happen, but the rifle itself really was pretty innovative in a lot of those regards. Had that aluminum bedding block and it's just really good system. Um, it had an unusual way of adjusting the uh, trigger tension pretty easily. So they did, um, they did innovate quite a bit and set some standards. So it, it, yeah, my impression at the time was that that was the first one of those full body bolt things. And the neat thing about them is even though they're not made now, they're not really popular. You can pick them up used at a pretty good price. And I think they're worth looking into, especially the ones with a, uh, a wood handle on them instead of the plastics. But there may be some good synthetics out there. I remember the one I was using was synthetic and it was really ugly stock line. You know, they were, I think, a, trying to appeal to the younger generation that wanted something different. And they had some pretty radical shapes and designs that really didn't contribute to good shooting. It was just a look. But you might want to keep your eyes open for those. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right. Um, now let's see. We've got something from uh, Fergus. Ron, I was educated in engineering, and you seem to be a technical person, you know, to a degree. As a bullet leaves a barrel, is it accelerating? And the bullet has a moment of inertia that tends to keep it accelerating for some short period after the force ceases to be applied. Have you ever seen bullets increase velocity shortly after the muzzle? And might this affect uh, ballistics of a particular cartridge and propellant characteristics? I wrote a long, long answer here to Ferguson. I said, any increase in velocity after the measured muzzle velocity, the bullet speed immediately upon release from the muzzle, would affect trajectory. But this effect would be minimal. I have read some reports that the out-of-the-barrel boost might occur, but for a microsecond, if that, because the escaping gases are free to expand in all directions. The back of the bullet represents just a tiny percentage of available space. Meanwhile, atmospheric drag is immediately countering the bullet or that boost. Or should I say continuing to resist the bullet since the air within the bore itself is resisting the bullet's forward progress, its entire travel to the exit. I have never measured this with my primitive chronographs because they must be positioned 10 to 15 feet from the muzzle to prevent them from measuring ejecta gas velocity rather than bullet velocity. Slower burning powders do sometimes, perhaps often, reach the exit unburned before igniting. There's your part of your muzzle flash. And often not igniting at all, you can sometimes find particles forward of the muzzle if you place a white sheet on the ground. But the bulk of muzzle flash is merely the result of hot gases of burned powder glowing. They're so hot that they emit radiation as visible light. Just as you see a molten steel rod glowing, you will see the escaping powder gases glow or flash red, orange, yellow until they cool. So the upshot is once the gases have emerged from the confines of the barrel and the bullet blocking that barrel, the bullet is immediately being slowed by atmospheric pressure and the gases are free to go all around that bullet. And I don't think that they add but a tiny, tiny little bit of velocity to the bullet after it leaves the muzzle and maybe for that much distance. So basically, don't worry about it. It's not worth considering. And I don't think it's even measurable in hunting cartridges or even target cartridges. Now, before we continue, I want to mention my friend Tim Christie's great book here. If you're at all into wildlife photography, which some of you might remember I am, uh, I enjoy hunting with a camera almost as much as with a shotgun or a rifle. Tim is uh, of a similar bent. He is a hunter, but he's also an inveterate wildlife photographer, and he has really, really put the effort into it over the years. He and I used to go out photographing together after the hunting seasons. I mean, well, before the hunting seasons, too. Um, and just had some great times stalking wildlife in Nor North America, Canada, as well as the U.S. Tim has put together this book, which is really a clever idea of his photographs with explanations of how they were taken, the incidents that occurred, and just, just some really fascinating stories in there. So you learn a little bit about photographic technique, but mostly you get the feel for what it's like to hunt with a camera and capture wildlife. And Tim has just some outstanding images all the way around. I mean, look at this one of a cedar waxwing or a bohemian waxwing, just dead sharp in flight. And he's got elk, he's got 
a really cool story of a coyote that he came across that had a stick in its mouth, dropped it on the road. Tim got out for some reason. He thought, I'm just going to pick up that stick and throw it off to the side. The coyote retrieved the stick, came back and dropped it on the road again. He's just like, he's one of those, what? When does that ever happen? So if you enjoy wildlife encounters of that type and photography and just the beautiful photos that come out of it, you might want to look for this book from Tim. It's called Stories Painted with Light. I think you can get it on Amazon, but if you're having any trouble finding it, I think you can go to probably Tim's website. It's called uh, timchristiephoto.com and Christie is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E christyphoto.com so i think you'll enjoy that great book had to give my old buddy a plug there now let's get back to some questions now i've got a, a pen pal friend here from the social media world who watches my videos and reads my blogs and whatnot and he's from in czechoslovakia or hungary i forgot which one now his name is chris and he is always commenting on bullet choices and enough velocity and he's really concerned about using enough bullet and understanding which bullets do the job on what size animals. And he really gets got it down to a science. And he sent me this little list of general guidelines for choosing the ideal hunting bullet. And I think they're worth going over. One, the faster the muzzle speed, the harder the bullet should be. And I agree, because what does increased velocity do to a bullet? It makes it expand more. And if you have a soft bullet, it can break apart. It can expand too much and turn into a pancake. And then you don't get penetration. So you want a little harder bullet or a little more controlled expansion. Good point. Next one. The closer your quarry, the harder the bullet should be. For the same reason. The closer you are on your shot, the higher the velocity at impact. Same reason. Now, um, the number three was the lower the bullet's BC, the softer it can be. Why would he say that? Well, because a lower BC bullet is going to slow down more quickly, and it's not going to have as much energy or velocity when it hits the target. Same application as the first two. Next, the larger and tougher the game, the harder the bullet should be. And that one, I think, is pretty obvious to most of us. You know, we don't go after moose with a varmint bullet, and we don't go after prairie dogs with a moose bullet. <laughs> so that one is a, is a no-brainer. Next one, if you want a pass-through, two holes for better blood trails, use controlled expansion bullets. That's, I think, pretty obvious too, because controlled expansion means you don't overexpand, and that means you retain more energy for penetration, and you're more likely to go out the other side and leave two holes. Next one, the more a bullet expands, the wider but shallower the wound channel. And that's another one I think that's really easy to grasp. You get big expansion, less of a shank behind the bullet. There's more friction, more drag, and a bullet slows down. You don't get as deep a penetration. Next, uh, the less a bullet expands, the longer and deeper, the narrower the wound channel. And again, same sort of idea. Minimize the surface area pushing against the tissue, and it can go farther in that animal. No bullet performs perfectly or exactly the same every time. And that's, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it just happens. And I have seen it all. Anyone who has hunted a lot will tell you, you cannot say this particular cartridge pushing this particular bullet at this velocity is always going to do this. 
It drops an animal in its tracks every time. It always shoots through and blah, blah, blah. I have seen exceptions to all of these rules. I've seen big, heavy bullets fail to penetrate adequately, fail to drop the animal quickly. I've seen tiny little bullets that should never even have been there, killing like a lightning bolt. It is just anything can happen. Animals are not universal like, uh, let's say, a steel plate of a certain manufacturer and type. There are differences, and whether it's an adrenaline rush or what, just don't expect the same thing. Always expect the unexpected. All right. Uh, no bullet cartridge impact energy can always knock down or kill any and every big animal unless you hit it in the central nervous system. Animals shot in the heart and lungs with any bullet may run for several seconds. Absolutely. I have never seen a, an animal hit in the central nervous system, and that is the, the spinal column or the brain itself that ran off. Um, but lung shot animals, heart shot animals, an animal can live for several seconds without a heart. That's why they can do open heart surgery on people. That's why people are pronounced clinically dead, and yet they come back to life with resuscitation. Um, things happen out there that we don't fully understand, so just keep that in mind. I mean, a good hunter always expects an animal to be able to do the unexpected, so you need to be able to track and, and watch your hits and watch the reaction of the animal. It's all part of being a hunter is learning this stuff and anticipating it and keeping an open mind and continue to hunt. The closer your query, the harder the bullet should be. I think we've kind of already covered that one. The lower the, oops, I'm, I'm, I'm on the wrong page. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> all right. Um, you don't have to use the same ammo and bullets for all of your hunting. And I think that's one that most of us recognize too. But I would put a little caveat here. If you can find a kind of general all-around bullet that works really well and develop a load for your rifle or find the factory ammunition for your rifle that shoots really well and you're satisfied with, if you can stick with that for everything, you're going to shoot better. You're going to hit better because you're going to know that load, how it drifts in the wind and how much it drops and all the rest of it. it just becomes almost an extension of you through that rifle barrel downrange. Um, and there are some bullets that are pretty darn good options for everything. You're not going to be too big. You're not going to be too small, too hard, too soft. you got to strike a balance. But I think it's possible to do that if you do your homework. Finally, this uh, gentleman here, Chris, says, match the hunt and game to your ideal hunting bullet, which is pretty much what I was just saying. So, good points there, Chris. Thanks for uh, laying those on us. We can all learn from one another. And so, if you've got some uh, good experience and ideas like that and some tips you want to send in, boy, I'm more than happy to consider those. All right, here's somebody called Dave. If you drop a bullet from your hand onto the floor, it will drop to the floor at the same rate at which it was hitting the ground if it was moving 2,000 feet per second, if you shot it. This is that old, that old argument about you shoot a bullet at 2,000, heck, make it 3,000 feet per second. And at the very same instant it leaves the muzzle, you drop a bullet straight to the ground. They're both going to hit the ground at the same time. This is just Newtonian physics. And I, people can't believe this. I, when I first heard it, it was like, what? You got to be kidding me. I mean, that bullet is going so fast. No way. It's going to stay airborne longer. No, it's not the fact how fast it's going in a horizontal direction it has nothing to do with the vector given it by gravity pulling it down. 
That's always pulling at 32 feet per second per second. And so if you drop a bullet or shoot the bullet perfectly horizontally to the pull of gravity, they're both going to hit the ground at the same time. It's just that the one going 3,000 feet per second goes farther down range before it hits the ground. And that's what Dave's talking about right here. Now he continues. The forward speed has no impact on its drop. Correct. But if you aim the barrel up a little, you're putting upward energy into the bullet. And that's, I think, where people get confused. Now they're not both going to hit at the same time. But if you aim the barrel up a little, you're going to put energy into the bullet. And if you're tossing it up so that it goes up before it falls back down, there's no difference standing still or flying fast. Flat shooting cartridges are simply fast. The more speed it has, the quicker it gets to the target and the less time it has to fall. And you have to compensate less for the drop. The drop is always the same, but it gets there faster. But Ron is spot on. Your muzzle must be raised to compensate for drop. You sight your rifle or your iron sights, and then you adjust them to cant your bullet up. Has to be done or your bullet never gets there because it immediately begins to fall when it leaves the barrel. Good points, Dave. All right, now we have some questions here from the team again that I haven't seen before. Actually, I didn't see that last one till just now either. <laughs> but I think I handled it okay. We're going to go to Wisconsin where Terry Terry says, Hi, Ron, I'm a longtime 270 shooter and hunter. I assume that's the 270 Winchester. I absolutely love the rifle and the ballistics. I have found that the 270 also makes a very good long-range rifle using quality hunting ammo and bullets. I am curious about the 6.8 Western, which we all know by now is basically a 270 in a short action, but supposedly on steroids. I am pondering playing with that 6.8, but I'm a bit turned off by the firearms that are chambered for it. I have not been able to get enough accuracy to meet my requirements out of the Browning, and I don't have much faith in the Winchester XPR as having enough accuracy to make me happy. I do, however, have uh, two Model 70s that shoot sub-minute of angle all day with both factory and hand loads. Being retired, the price of a new Model 70 and 6.8 Western, while not out of reach, does make me curious as to how wise it is to invest uh, $1,200 or so in a rifle in a caliber that does not seem to be catching on. What are your thoughts on the standard 270, which has done everything I ever wanted it to, and the new 6.8 Western? Is the difference enough worth the price? Hope to hear from you soon, Terry. Terry, yes, I can uh, address this for you. The 6.8 Western is probably 200 feet per second faster than the 270 Winchester. Think of it as the 270 WSM, that short fat case, with the shoulder pushed back just a little bit because that's what it is. And that gives you then more headroom to put a longer bullet in the same short action rifle and chamber. And then you get to shoot these high BC bullets to reduce your wind deflection. That's the main advantage to it. Also, you're going to have more energy downrange with a heavier bullet. So you've got more powder in the 6.8. That's why you can push those bullets faster. But if the 270 Winchester is doing it for you, as it's been doing for so many people for so long, of course you don't need to get a 6.8. I mean, this is for the shooter who likes to stay on the cutting edge or likes that slight improvement that 200 feet per second more velocity gives you or the higher BC bullets give you. Now, be aware that the 270 Winchester is being offered with some fast twist barrels by some manufacturers, and I think this is probably going to continue. 
and we'll get more of those, but you're still going to not have the same muzzle velocity with that. If you load 165, 170 grain bullet on a 270 Winchester, you're not going to be going the same muzzle velocity as a 6.8 using that same bullet. So if uh, more velocity uh, turns your crank, you probably have to go with the 6.8. Now, I once tested, uh, I think there were six Browning rifles, and they were the, the X-Bolt. I don't remember exactly which one, but a fairly long barrel appropriate to that cartridge. And I was shooting them, zeroing them for folks. And shooting three-shot groups to see how accurate each was. So a three-shot group is not going to give you the absolute inaccuracy, but it gives you a pretty good idea. But as I recall, all six of those rifles shooting factory ammunition printed minute of angle or better. I was surprised and impressed. And then there was a, a gentleman there that had that same chambering in that XBR rifle, and he was getting MOA out of that, which also surprised me a bit. Although those rifles can really be accurate. They're fairly inexpensive. Actually, what you said here about the Model 70 shooting sub, sub MOA shocked me more than anything, because recently people have been telling me that the 70s weren't shooting all that well. I, the ones I have do, but then I play around and tweak and find the right loads and everything. But anyway, that the idea is whether you should dump your 270 Winchester and get a 6.8 Western, you can ask that same question for the 26 Nozzer, the 270 Weatherby Magnum. Um, and, and who knows? It's, it's Each of us makes up our own minds about these things. I don't think you need me telling you what to, or, to buy or not buy. <laughs> you, you're going to have fun with either one of them. Uh, both of them will be effective. I don't think one's going to be super more uh, effective than the other. So suit yourself on it. But if you like new rifles and new cartridges and playing around with them, pick yourself up a 6.8 Western. But if you uh, like the old standards, you can stick with that. All right, let's uh, go to Pennsylvania where James is asking about what? I love the cartridge comparison videos. And I was wondering if you would do one on the uh, different straight wall cartridges. Um, I have already done that one, James. What else does he say here? Everyone tends to jump to the 44 mag, 350 legend, or the 4570. But there are many others. 41 mag, 10 millimeter, 454 Casual, 460 and 500 Smith & Wesson, to name a few. I'm sure you can think of many more. The best that I can tell, Pennsylvania allows the 458 lot and some other dangerous game cartridges. An amusing oversight that maybe we should keep to ourselves. Wink, wink. I would be curious to see which has the best maximum point blank range for deer sized game. What the maximum range they would retain enough energy for on elk, bear, and moose for that one gun crowd. So more information would be uh, valued. Thanks, James. Well, James, I did do a, a special video on the straight walled cartridges. I didn't cover all of them, but I sort of addressed what's out there in these straight wall only states. You got to remember that a lot of those will have that maximum length case length limitation which knocks some of these right out of the park here or right out of the game the 458 lot 458 wind mag would not be allowed i don't think the 4570 even fits so that limits it quite a bit and then the handgun ones i have not specifically done the handgun revolver cartridges straight walls uh, because there's such different ballistics between the short-barreled revolvers and the rifle. You can I have addressed a few of them as rifles by extrapolating. If you took this load from a 10-inch barrel or an 8-inch barrel and put it into a 20-inch barrel, how much more velocity would you get? It's a little bit of a 
extrapolation there, but gives you a general idea. But yeah, those those are the ones that you mentioned, pretty good options. Maybe I'll do a special someday just on the revolver cartridges, straight wall that can be used either in revolvers and or rifles for this kind of hunting. But yeah, good uh, good point. I can see where you would be searching for that some, uh, but just go to my regular channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, and look for the one on straight walled cartridges. Okay, we're staying in the east here. It looks like it's in Maryland from Richard. Really enjoy watching your videos on YouTube. What links do you use to get data on ballistics? Velocity, energy, trajectory, recoil, etc. Also, some links on what powder and how much to use, and then what links to figure out ballistics in your reload. Thank you very much. I would guess Richard's a fairly young person here because old timers know where to go to find uh, the information on loads and powders and all that, and that's the hand-loading manuals. Virtually every bullet maker and most of the powder makers uh, will have booklets or books out on all the recipes for pretty much all the cartridges. They don't cover every cartridge in the world, but most of the popular ones are in there. So that's where you find out which primer to use with which powder, with which bullet, et cetera, et cetera, how much, and all the rules and regulations for putting them together safely, watching for pressure signs. It's all basic stuff in those manuals. They're really instruction manuals as well as recipes. So that's where you go. Sierra, Hornady, Nosler, um, Swift, just about every bullet maker has a manual for loading their bullets. So look for those. As far as the information I put together on ballistic trajectories, those are trajectory charts calculated by a calculator. And there used to be a bunch of them um, you could get in a CD format to use in your computers. These days, everything's online, including those. And most of them are free. Some of them are better than others. Uh, a couple that I use, uh, one is shooterscalculator.com. I find that one to be quite accurate and easy to use. And then JBM Ballistics, or is it JMB? I always get those two mixed up, but check either one. J JMB or JBM Ballistics has a really good computer. Hornady has some pretty good ones too. A lot of the um, factory loads, factory ammunition manufacturers will have ballistic calculators, but they limit those quite often to their ammunition only. So you don't get the kind of versatility you get with these other ones where you need to know your bullet's velocity and ballistics coefficient and weight and a few other parameters like that. And then you get data for anything you can put together. All right. Good question, Richard. Oh, gosh, there's another Richard. They must be brothers. This one lives in South Dakota. Have you done any reviews on the 308, 338 Marlin Express? Those are two different cartridges, I think. I don't think he means the 338 Marlin neck down to 308. Um, at one time, I was about to convert a nice straight stocked Marlin 336, that's a lever action rifle, to 307 Winchester when Marlin started chambering rifles for the above rounds. I've been very pleased with them, but I don't seem to hear much about them anymore. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that they just didn't take off and they're probably going to be obsolete fairly soon. I think they were good options. Uh, as I recall, both of them are based off of the 308 Winchester, modified slightly to be used in the uh, Marlin 336 lever action. So, and then that 307 Winchester, that was the same deal, it was essentially the 308 Winchester. Uh, fitted out. I think they stuck a rim on that one so they could use it in the rim in the uh, lever action rifles a little more smoothly. Um, but the idea with all of those is to 
increase the performance of lever action rifles typically chambered for a 3030 or a 32 special by using the 308 cartridge but what they don't quite get right or can't is the extremely long sharply pointed high bc bullets you get in a 308 because those sharply tipped hard bullets in lever actions with tubular magazines are a no-no or at least they won't do it because of the possibility for uh, the firing pins the front of the bullet sharp against the primer of the one in front of it then will act like a firing pin under recoil and there's all kinds of debate about whether or not that actually happens but that's why lever action cartridges for tubular magazines like the 3030 are usually round nosed at best or flat nosed. And they did the same thing with the 338, 308 Marlins and the 307 Winchester. You did get a little more pressure out of those for a little more velocity. So it increased your punch a bit and the reach a little bit too. But I don't think it was enough to offset. Well, the whole idea of now I have to buy another rifle. I've already got a 3030 that works just fine. Now, one, one little bright light in this whole program, of course, are those rubber tipped bullets from Hornady, the flex tips that can be sharply pointed and used in the 3030s or anything else where you would typically use a flat nose. And that will help get your BC a little bit higher and your performance up. So if you matched that up with one of these, um, going away cartridges the 307 308 and 338 yeah you might gain something significant so something you might want to look into folks um i don't know that anyone's chambering for those anymore i haven't heard of any for several years now with ruger taking over marlin and starting to make the old marlin rifles again improved versions i guess maybe down the road they'll do something It'd certainly be worth uh, asking them and or poking them a little bit see if they'll do it Good question, though, Richard. Those would be fun little cartridges to play around with if a guy had the right rifle. All right, how about Kansas? Allen. Ron, maybe you've done it before, but I'd really enjoy your study and assessment of the Cartridge 300 RCM. That's a Ruger Compact Magnum, as compared against the venerable 30-06 and even the 300 WSM. I'm not suggesting your evaluation be relative to long-range shooting, just practical hunting of deer-sized game out to about 300 yards. Well, that's a good idea. Um, I haven't hunted with a 300 RCM, as I can recall. I have the 300 WSM and the 300 uh, Short Action Ultra Magnum from Remington, and they perform about like you would expect, kind of in between the uh, .30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. And the 300 RCM, I think, is right about with the 30-06, maybe a little bit better. But maybe someday I'll just take all of those short, fat 300s, and we'll do a video on all of those and show the slight differences amongst them. Good idea. Thanks, Alan. And in Ohio, we have Andre. In reference to your email, I must have emailed him back on something. I'd be interested in hearing you talk about some of the European cartridges we don't see too frequently in this country, like the Brennicky design cartridges and the cartridges designed for doubles and drillings. On that note, I want to take a moment to offer some praise for Lucas Schulte. He writes some good blogs on the Ron Spomer Outdoors website. He does indeed. Engaging and informative. Keep up your good work and try to keep all of this winter weather in mind to cool you off when it's boiling hot outside and it has rained and it hasn't rained in a month or two. Well, this must have come in some time ago, but the first I've seen it. 
Now, I want to say something about Lucas Schulte. He is a veterinarian over in Germany, and of course, he loves to hunt and study uh, guns and ammo and shooting. And he got on my site and was really enjoying it and said, hey, you don't have much on European cartridges, which makes sense because you're not in Europe. <laughs> How about I write some things for you? And I tell you what, as a German writing in English, he does better than most of the folks who try to show me their stories and get them published who speak English as a first language. <laughs> It's a little bit embarrassing, but we tend to be a little sloppy with our English and our grammar and syntax. Whereas a German learning English, of course, is going to learn the right rules and the right way to put things together. And if you pay attention and apply yourself, you can do that. <laughs> so Lucas does a darn good job of it. And he knows his stuff. He's got a lot of history on the old German cartridges, the ones that were made for the drillings and the doubles and the single shots and all the rest of these cool rifles that the Europeans have used over the years. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll have him. In fact, just the other day, he contacted me and said, hey, are you ready for some more pieces? So I think we're going to fire up again and get him to send some more things in. So keep watching for that. Go to ronspomeroutdoors.com. That's our website. All kinds of blogs and stories with lots of photos in there from not only Lucas, but me and several other people who have written for us over the years. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Andre. Glad you're enjoying that uh, Lucas Schulte work. And finally, I think this is our last one. Yes, it is. From Wisconsin. Steve, Ron, how safe is it to use a powder that is not listed in a loading manual, <laughs> but is listed in another bullet brand's manual for the same weight bullet? For example, my 270 WSM Tika T3 loves Mag Pro powder and 150 grain ballistic tips, but that powder is not listed in the Hornady manual. I want to try uh, this load with 150 grain SST. Can I back off 10% and load some safely? That is a good point, Steve, because as you said, the different bullet manufacturers will give all the load data for their bullets. But what if it's another bullet? So you're wanting to swap out some components. Anytime you swap components in a hand load, whether it's the case, the powder, the primer, or the bullet, you do need to back way off. Yes, they're all 150 grain bullets, but some of them are a little stickier than others, shall we say. Um, they may have more shank exposed to the rifling and that will increase the friction and raise the pressures. They may have a little bit different zinc and copper compound in the jacket. The gilding metal jacket may be harder or softer and more or less sticky. So all these little things can play a role in how much pressure you're going to develop. But the weights are the same, so the powders would be the same. You just need to back off. 10%, yeah, I think I would just start with your starting loads. Whatever the manual says, this is your starting load that's safe and now you work your way up. Go to that just to make sure. I don't know if 10% would necessarily be adequate, but that is a smart way to do business. Don't just throw any new bullet on there and expect to be using your highest pressure load with the previous bullet. Could get you into trouble. I tend not to give advice on hand loads other than to say, follow the manuals because those people are working in laboratories. They know the powders and the pressures and their test barrels, and they've done the science and the research on this stuff. I don't want to be suggesting that you should go out and try mixing three different powders and four different bullets and six different primers, and they're all the same, and just go ahead and play Dr. Frankenstein and make a monster because that monster might come back to bite you. Follow 
the directions and all the safety protocols in the hand loading manuals. Hand loading is a safe procedure if you follow the rules. Don't take the word of somebody on social media or some broadcast like this. That what works for one person in one rifle it doesn't mean it's going to work in everybody else's. And there are folks out there with only eight fingers who could confirm that. <laughs> Hey, this is Ron Spomer. Thanks, everybody, for writing in with your questions and your advice. Um, there's some good stuff there. And as I've always said, we're all in this together. We all share and compile our knowledge and admit our mistakes to come up with the right answers to these things. I think it helps everyone. So thanks so much. We'll see you next time on Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. In the meantime, an honest and shoot straight.